Welcome back to the story of I'm Reagan Snyder and I'm really, 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 really glad you're here. Due to the graphic nature of some of these stories, listener discretion is advised. This is going to be a two-parter. It's about cults. And if I just do one episode of all the cults that I think are crazy and interesting, then it would be a really, really long episode. So I'm just going to break it up. And I was, you know, I wasn't lying when I told you on my Instagram earlier this week that it was going to be a compilation episode. So that's what it is, but they're all about cults. So let's just jump into it, shall we? Love Has Won was a New Age cult led by this lady named Amy Carlson. The group believed in a mixture of New Age spirituality, conspiracy theories like QAnon, and some elements of mainstream Abrahamic religions like Islam and Judaism. And they believed that Amy was this 19 billion year old divine being who has been reincarnated specifically 534 times. She was Jesus. She was Marilyn Monroe. She was Cleopatra. She was Joan of Arc. And she birthed all creation. Amy has seen some things. She believed that Donald Trump was her father in a past life and that she had a close relationship with Robin Williams' spirit and Robin Williams was the one who was giving her spiritual counsel. Robin Williams, he's probably up there like, oh, geez, don't drag me into this. The members of Love Has Won referred to Amy as Mother God, and whoever her partner was at the time was referred to as Father God. According to Amy, there could be multiple Father Gods because The father god energy was just too big to be contained by one human being, so it was contained by multiple beings, but there could only be one mother god. The group believed that Amy's body was a filtration system in which the world was cleansed of negative energies and low vibrations. The group was made up of between 12 and 20 core members, and these core members lived with Amy They lived in this small town in Colorado called Crestone, and to recruit more members, they would live stream a ton on the internet, like on YouTube, every day. And they gained about 100, between 100 and 200 remote members, and they would keep in touch with these members and keep them in the loop online. So, you know, it's like a remote religion. Mother God would appear sometimes in the videos, but her appearances on these videos stopped altogether. And one girl in the group explained that this was because Mother God's vibration was so high that the rest of us would explode because ours is so low. Nobody wants that. They asked for donations and sold their New Age products like supplements, vitamins, crystals, those sorts of things. And they even offered etheric surgery for $88, which would remove sickness and negative energy from the body. The group believed that Amy was in a constant battle with Cabal, a dark global organization who wanted to keep all of humanity in a low vibrational state. 
And in her last life, the cabal tried to assassinate Amy about 600 times, but they were unsuccessful. Thank goodness. The group's goal was to leave behind the 3D world and lead people to the 5D plane of existence. The people who were left behind would be destroyed and their energies would be recycled into the sun. Amy expected to ascend in a starship or through a portal in the ocean. Amy had a pretty normal childhood. She grew up, she got married, she had three kids, she ended up getting divorced, and then she started to become disconnected from her kids. She was very, very preoccupied with New Age spirituality, and she claims that she was experiencing otherworldly phenomena and that an etheric voice told her that she would one day become the president of the United States. She met this guy online named Amareth White Eagle, and he told her that she was a god. I'm sorry, not a god. She was god. And she clung on to that narrative even after Amareth was out of the picture. So he became the father god to her mother god for a while, and then eventually they broke up. Amy, who was completely disconnected from her kids at this point, decided to abandon them to go to Colorado to begin her cult. She taught her followers that they needed to tune into higher vibrational frequencies. Amy appeared to be charming and bright, charismatic, all the great and wonderful things that people are described as in these stories, but she drank and she drank a lot. And she was a mean drunk. And soon that side of her took over. There are videos out there of her. I can't remember where I saw them. Maybe on, maybe on YouTube. But there are videos of her mistreating a cat. And locking this sad, crying little kid into a closet. And she kept saying, you need to surrender. You need to surrender to this little kid who just probably needs love. One of her boyfriends who became Father God, was Jason Castillo, who also left his family to join the cult. He said, quote, My 3D children are the greatest children on the planet. They are well aware that the needs of a few are unimportant compared to the whole planet. There are 8.5 billion children, end quote. So he left his kids to take care of everyone else's. How... How selfless? How selfless. And even though love has won members talk about loving everyone, love is in the name, their behavior was sometimes the complete opposite. Jason, in particular, was pretty abusive and unpredictable. He would make threats of violence. He would have these aggressive outbursts. And the live streams turned into day-to-day updates about Amy's ongoing war with the Cabal. On August 1st, 2018, they informed their viewers that dark witches had attacked her, and later on, they said that they had attempted to assassinate her again. And during this, a sword sliced one of Amy's hearts. One of the members giving these updates said, quote, The etheric have been doing surgery on it for many hours now, and mom is throwing up diarrhea. She was shaking, end quote. 
In 2019, they say that Amy was hit with etheric darts and that her spleen and pancreas have been infiltrated by the cabal. In reality, Amy's health was failing, and she was self-medicating with a ton of alcohol and a ton of colloidal silver. And I think colloidal silver is okay in small amounts. I've heard of people using it, but she was taking it a ton. They would have these sessions in which members or even one single member was criticized by the group and called out. And they did this in an attempt to weed out the negative energies infesting the group. So sounds really healthy and productive. Members were encouraged to contribute financially towards Love Has Won projects and to pay for counseling and etheric surgery sessions. Mother God and Father God would control their sleep schedule their food intake, and members were expected to live celibate lives and cut off contact with any friends or family members who were not in support of the group. So how the heck were people led into this? They were love-bombed. And love-bomb is a a term used by psychologists. It's a term of abuse, actually, in which the person being love-bombed experiences hyper-friendly and empathetic attention from the person or the group who is love bombing them. At the bottom of our hearts, I don't care who you are, we all just want to be heard and understood, and that's what love bombing would accomplish. It would make people feel good and heard and understood and like, oh, these people get me. In 2020, the core group moved to Kauai in Hawaii into this luxury beachfront rental And local residents were a little bit suspicious of them, especially after Amy announced that she was Pele, the Hawaiian goddess of fire and volcanoes, and she was the creator of the Hawaiian islands, and people didn't like that. At one point, they had a hundred protesters gathered outside their, their property that they were renting, and within a week, the mayor had to get involved, and in my experience, Hawaiian... Locals, residents are pretty peaceful people. (laughs) And so the mayor told them that he just wasn't able to guarantee their safety. I don't think he was mean or tried to drive them out. I mean, I think he tried to probably drive them out, but that's what he told them. So they decided to leave and they tried to relocate to Maui, but they ran into some trouble with travel documents at the airport and they just gave up and went back to Colorado. And Amy's health was really failing Back in Colorado, she was approaching her last days. She found herself bedridden most of the time. And she was mean. She was so mean. But her followers loved her and did whatever they were told. Except she asked several different times for medical help, but her followers refused to take her to what they call the 3D hospital because they say that they know how hijacking works. They're not idiots. And they were worried that Amy would be hijacked and that they would try to take her into surgery. And there was just no way they were going to let that happen. So we are not exactly sure when, but Amy died sometime in the month of April 2021. Her followers were excited that Amy had shed her vessel and ascended to the 5D plane of existence. But her, I think they had it in their minds. They were excited to see what the coroner aired the autopsy had to say. Because, you know, she's like this magical spiritual being. But her cause of death was just alcohol abuse, anorexia, 
and chronic colloidal silver ingestion. Her body was enshrined at a member's home in Colorado. The room was decorated kind of childlike. It had twinkle lights, rainbows, hearts, stars, some stuffed animals, and it had the lingering smell of sage. Her body was on a bed wrapped in a sleeping bag and decorated with glitter and Christmas lights. Group members were charged with abuse of corpse, among other charges, but the charges were later dropped, and the group is still active. They have rebranded to be called 5D Full Disclosure, and Jason Castillo formed a separate group called Joy of Reigns. In 1998, Keith Rainier and Nancy Saltzman, a former psychiatric nurse, started Nixium. People were drawn to it because it presented itself as a self-help organization, and they offered these executive success programs that were marketed as personal and professional development courses, which would help members overcome their fears and anxieties and meet their full potential. These courses lured people in like Jennifer Aniston and Gerard Butler, which obviously made Nixium more credible. Jennifer Aniston and Gerard Butler, I don't think they got as deep as some other people did, but to me it sounds like they must have taken one of the courses. Students were required to sign NDAs before classes. Call me crazy, but that seems like a red flag. The self-help classes, you know, self-help is great. It's great, but there was something way more sinister beyond all of these self-help classes that they were offering. This was just more of a facade to get people to join this cult. The courses were meant to exhaust members so that they would be easier to influence. They would do things like wake them up for a cold shower at 3 a.m. or make them sleep on the ground. Rainier was known by his members as Vanguard and Nancy Saltzman was known as Prefect and his followers thought that Rainier was the most ethical man in the world. The members, both men and women, were were all required to greet Rainier with a kiss on the lips, and if they didn't, they would be called out, and they would be embarrassed in front of their peers, and they were made to feel like any hesitation that they had was a personal problem and that they were failing. Rainier also believed that victimization was a mindset in all circumstances. High-ranking members lived in community housing together, and they taught and led classes and sessions at the organization's spin-off programs. Some of these programs were Jeunesse, which was a women's-only program, and there was one called Society of Protectors, which was for men only, where women were forced to wear fake cow udders over their breasts while men insulted them. Its deepest, darkest one, from my understanding, was a circle or a group called DOS. DOS is an acronym for a Latin phrase that roughly translates to Lord or Master of the Obedient Female Companions. And to join, it was a women's only one, and to join, women were required to give collateral. And this collateral was embarrassing or incriminating information. So like nude or sexual photos or videos of them or fake confessions 
incriminating loved ones who had sexually abused them, whether or not they did it, to be used as blackmail against them if they ever if they ever disclosed the existence of DOS. I don't know why on earth anybody would join this group, but I also have not been brainwashed by this cult. This sisterhood was an empowerment group. It had different circles. Each was led by a master who recruited slaves, and those slaves would go on to recruit more slaves. So it was kind of like an MLM, and their goal was to get slaves involved in the government so that they could spread Rainier's ideas through society. He would punish women if they were intimate with anybody other than him, and in one instance of this, he kept one woman prisoner for 18 months in one of his supporters' homes. He had DOS members eating between 500 and 900 calories a day while also working out every day to stay thin or, in some cases, underweight. They had to have permission to eat anything, and some of the women's hair started to fall out and their periods even stopped because they were just so malnourished. Members were often asked to wear electrode caps while being shown images of violence and videos, images and videos of things like abuse, of murder, and it was all in the name of trauma therapy. This went on for almost two decades after the start of Nixium, and Sarah Edmondson, who was part of the cult, filed a complaint to the New York State Department after her initiation into DOS. She was required to send that collateral, the naked photos of herself, and to her master to become a slave. Then she was blindfolded, she was stripped down naked, and she was held down onto a massage table and told to say, quote, Master, please brand me. It would be an honor, end quote. And using a cauterizing device, Sarah was branded with a symbol of Keith Rainier's initials onto her pelvic area, and the whole thing was filmed. And this was to hold them accountable for their loyalty to DOS, which is why they were made to say what they said. The women of DOS were on call 24-7, and if they didn't respond to a text from their master within one minute, literally within 60 seconds, they would be punished with starvation, and some were assigned to have sex with Rainier. There were at least 150 DOS sex slaves. Each master had multiple slaves who were required to report to them. Whenever they were punished, they were punished with things like being forced to hold a painful pose, to stand barefoot in the snow, to take cold showers, or to whip each other on their bare butts with a strap. Once media caught wind of the cult in 2017, Rainier dipped. He headed to Mexico, but he was arrested and deported back to New York, and he was charged with crimes like forced labor and sex trafficking. And then Allison Mack, do you know who she is? She's an actress. She was on Smallville, and she was part of this whole thing. She was instrumental in recruiting and controlling women who joined DOS. And then there were others who were part of this whole thing, and they were indicted for crimes like identity theft, extortion, forced labor, sex trafficking, money laundering, wire fraud, and obstruction of justice. They're just bad news. 
And Rainier got what was coming to him because he was sentenced to life in prison. You already know this one, but listen, I'm going to tell you about it anyway. On March 26, 1997, police entered a mansion in Rancho Santa Fe on an anonymous tip. Rancho Santa Fe is a really, really nice suburb of San Diego in California. I actually used to live right next to it. And to get to the beach, I I had to drive through Rancho Santa Fe and I would just drool the whole way there looking at the properties like nice, nice. Anyway, the police go into this mansion and they find 21 women and 18 men and all of them are dead. They were all wearing identical black tracksuits and fresh Nikes, and they had matching armbands that said Heaven's Gate Away Team, and they were lying in bunk beds with purple shrouds over them. Police were a little bit confused. They didn't see any signs of blood, and they didn't see any signs of trauma to any of the bodies. In 1931, Marshall Applewhite was born in Texas, and he had a pretty normal childhood. He was musically talented, and at one point he wanted to become an actor. Ultimately, though, he would become a music professor at University of St. Thomas in Houston. But then in 1970, he was fired for allegedly having a relationship with one of his male students. His life just seemed to be falling apart at this point. He and his wife had gotten divorced, and now he was struggling with losing his job And it's speculated that he had a nervous breakdown. And maybe this is when all of his ideas started. But then a couple years later, he met this nurse named Bonnie Nettles. She was very, very interested in the Bible. And she had some unique spiritual beliefs. Bonnie convinced Marshall that he was very special and he had a purpose. The two felt very connected when they discussed their beliefs. They were like, oh, see, you get it. And by 1973, they decided that the both of them were here on earth to prepare the way for the kingdom of heaven. They were strictly platonic. They're in this partnership, but it was platonic. And they went by different nicknames like Bo and Peep, Winnie and Pooh, Tiddly and Wink. You get the gist. Butt and Hole. Just kidding. That's my fifth grade self popping in for a hello. Their beliefs were a mixture of Christianity, sci-fi, and conspiracy theories, and they recruited followers by distributing posters that promoted their beliefs. The thing that stood out most about these flyers was the word UFOs. That's not a word. That's an, that's an acronym, but you, you get it. It's fine. Just listen. They prepared presentations to give all over the country, and in 1975, They gave a fairly successful presentation in Oregon to about 150 people. They promoted Human Individual Metamorphosis, or Total Overcomers Anonymous, which we now know as Heaven's Gate. Evil aliens called Luciferians had already corrupted all religions on Earth and were conspiring to stunt human development. Sounds terrible. They promised that whoever joined them would be taken away to salvation by a spaceship. In order to join this group, which was headed to salvation, people were required to renounce all of their earthly possessions, 
drugs, sex, and abandon their families so that they could be elevated to the evolutionary level above human, also known as Tila, a new world for a better life. Most of the audience just laughed and took it as a joke, but a couple dozen people in in this presentation were swayed. And I mean, to the point that they left their loved ones to join this group. For two decades, up to 200 people at its high point followed the group in search of answers to questions that we all have at some point, you know, like, who am I? Where am I going? Where did I come from? Those, those type of questions. This group believed that if they were to stay on Earth long enough, they would have to go through the destruction, or what they called the recycling of the Earth. But Marshall and Bonnie didn't believe that it would come to that, because this spaceship was supposed to come for them way before that happened, so no worries. But in 1985, Bonnie threw, threw Marshall for a loop, and she died. She had cancer. And her death really, really messed with Marshall, emotionally, obviously, but philosophically, too. Because, what the heck? Where, why didn't the spaceship come to get Bonnie? So he was sad and lost, and, you know, they were supposed to lead their people to heaven together, and her death just called lots of the cult's teachings into question. Then he had a light bulb moment. Human bodies were merely vehicles carrying them through their journey, and as soon as their vehicles were able to be abandoned, they could ascend. And so that's what he decided had happened to Bonnie, who was on the other side, and she was probably really surprised that there weren't any aliens there. I don't know what you believe, but I just don't think Bonnie's hanging out with aliens. So this gave him the hope and encouragement that he needed to be re reunited with Bonnie again one day. And somewhere along the way, Marshall convinced himself that there was a UFO trailing behind the Hale-Bopp comet, and it was a sign. It was the ride that he and the members had been waiting on all along, and the only way to leave Earth and ascend was on this UFO. And if they waited any longer, Earth was going to be recycled while they were still on, er on Earth, while they were still here, and that would just suck. So they needed to find a way off this planet, stat, and this UFO was it. By this time, there were 39 members remaining. This group made their money by designing websites, and they had rented a mansion in San Diego, Rancho Santa Fe, which would be where they parked their vehicles forever. Forever. Heaven's Gate followers were instructed to eat applesauce or pudding that had been laced with a lot of barbiturates. They did this in small groups at a time and put bags over their heads to make sure that they would die. So it took several days. And those who were going last would clean up any messes made by the first groups. And they laid their bodies out neatly in, in these bunk beds. And then they covered them in purple shrouds. Very organized. Marshall was the 37th to go of 39, leaving two people in a mansion full of dead bodies to take their own lives. I don't care how nice the mansion is. I just don't think I, I would want to be in it if there's dead bodies there. The anonymous tipster was a former Heaven's Gate member 
who had left just weeks before the mass suicide, and they received a package of farewells on videotape with a map to the mansion. Heaven's Gate still has four livers... <laughs> what? <laughs> has four living followers who still believe in the teachings, and they were spared because someone had to run, run the website. Which, by the way, is still up and running if you want to check it out. It's still, it's very 90s. And I don't know if you, if you've heard, but the 90s are very cool. This cult originally was known as Teens for Christ. And then it gained notoriety as the Children of God. And then it was renamed and reorganized as the Family of Love. And then it was shortened to the family, and now it's known as the Family International, or TFI, as of 2004. You know um, River and Joaquin Phoenix, how they had kind of a weird upbringing? Well, they did, if you don't know. And this is the cult. This is the cult that they were born into. Rose McGowan was also born into it. And then Jeremy Spencer of Fleetwood Mac left everything behind to become part of it. And initially, they were spreading the message of salvation, spiritual revolution, and happiness, but also distrust in the outside world, which they called the system. And they also talked about the second coming of Jesus Christ. It was founded in 1968 by David Berg in Huntington Beach, California. He was an evangelical preacher with a following of born-again hippies. And he claimed that he had a revelation. California was going to be hit by a major earthquake. So they all left California and they would proselytize in the streets and pass out pamphlets in different cities. He communicated with his followers through letters called Mo Letters like M-O letters, Mo letters, Mo problems. He wrote almost 3,000 of them over a 24-year period. In one that he wrote in 1972, he claimed that he was God's prophet for the contemporary world. The cult claims to have had 130 communities around the whole world by 1972. And then in 1976, it started to get a little... A little messy and suspicious. In 1976, they started a method called flirty fishing, where the women of the cult would seduce men in order to gain an opportunity to proselytize and get donations. Some of them used escort agencies, and between 1974 and 1987, flirty fish members had sexual contact with 223 1,989 people. That's a lot of people. When reports of misconduct and sexual abuse of minors within the organization came out, David reorganized the movement and one-eighth of its members left. In 1982, the group changed its name to the family and, quote, tightened its standards to ensure that all member communities provide a very wholesome environment for all particularly the children, end quote. They went silent for a while, but by the early 90s, they broke their silence and they invited reporters and religious scholars to come visit their 
commune in La Habra, California. A journalist for the Washington Post reported them to be a clean-cut bunch, they were friendly, they were courteous, and the group had claimed to have 9,000 members worldwide. And then David Berg, the founder, died. So in October of 1994, Karen Zerby took over to lead the group. 1994 was also the year that, in a British court case, it was ruled that the group had been sexually abusive to minors and used severe corporal punishment and sequestration of minors. It was determined that they had stopped these practices by 1995 and that the group was a safe environment for children now. Some of their teachings seem fairly normal, like normal religious teachings, but then they have others like what they call loving Jesus, where the members are to include Jesus in their sex lives by visualizing him. And if you're a man, you're to visualize yourself as a woman so that you don't have a homosexual relationship with Jesus. The group imagines itself as Jesus's special bride, and they have graphic poetry, artwork, songs, and guided visualizations. Some of the group's literature, which, by the way, they have edited versions, I guess, for both teens and young children, just weird, is kept out of more conservative countries because they worry that it'll be classified as pornography. So there's that. David Berg's philosophy was that God is love and love is sex, so sex shouldn't be limited by age or relationship. So, you know, just like two plus two is seven. A brother and sister named Verity and Jonathan spoke about their experiences as children in the cult. And Verity says that she was abused from the time she was four on by members of the cult, including her father, Alexander Watt, who was convicted in 2018 of four charges of sexually abusing Verity and another child when they were in the cult. And then there's Jonathan, who says he was never sexually abused, but he was physically abused daily. He would would get daily beatings when he was a kid. If the kids in the cult ever showed any signs of play or imagination, so basically if they were ever just being kids, they would get beaten. They didn't have any former formal schooling, and they didn't know how to read or write. And whenever social workers or anyone from the outside world who who they called systemites came for a visit, the kids were very well prepared in advance with what to say. And on the day of, they would dress them up real nicely, ribbons in the girl's hair and everything. When he was 14, Jonathan suffered a mental breakdown. And after trying to pray the demons out of him didn't work, The cult kicked him out, but it's not cut and dry. He was out in the world, but all he knew was what he was taught in this cult, so he didn't know how to grapple with the real world. He was still living by the cult's teachings in his head, and it just, he had a hard time accepting the reality of the world pretty much, and this would lead him to become homeless by the time he was 16. During this time, Verity was still in the cult, and by the time she was 15, she had attempted suicide three different times, and she tried to run away two times. And then in the early 90s, she was like, I'm just going to get myself kicked out. So she went and she collected some items that were forbidden by the group, which were (laughs) 
like things like gum, cigarettes, makeup, jewelry, literally nothing illegal, but forbidden by this group. When they tried to perform an exorcism on her, she laughed, and I'm sure that just pissed him right off. So they gave her the boot. Verity used a lot of drugs and alcohol to block out her her childhood trauma, but then she became a mom and she changed her lifestyle. And she says she's surprised that she survived the first few years out of the cult. She gives credit to luck. Her mom is still in the cult and they don't speak, but Verity has a lot of siblings. She has four brothers and two sisters. They're all outside the cult, and she has good relationships with all of them. In Tokyo, on March 20th, 1995, millions of commuters left their homes to head to the subway. The day was going about normally, and people stepped onto the subway to head to their destination. As the subway went about its normal route, a couple of people started to cough. And then a few more started up, and suddenly every single person on the subway was coughing violently. They were gasping, some were coughing up blood, and even convulsing. Among commuters entering the subways were five men spread across three lines of the Tokyo Metro. Each of them had with them a bag full of liquid sarin, concealed in newspaper, and an umbrella with a sharpened tip. Sarin is an extremely toxic nerve agent that evaporates from liquid to vapor really, really fast. And it can cause death within one to 10 minutes by suffocation from respiratory paralysis. So in an organized attack, these men dropped their newspaper wrapped bags of sarin and punctured them several times with the umbrellas before getting off off of the train and exiting the station to meet up with their accomplice waiting in a car. This attack killed 14 people, severely injured 50, some of whom died later, and caused temporary vision problems for nearly a thousand people. These five men were part of the doomsday cult, Aum Shinrikyo, and it was a cult led by Shoko Asahara, His belief system drew from unique interpretations of early Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, Hinduism, as well as ideas from Christianity. It was just a whole mess of different ideas. He claimed that his mission was to take on the sins of the world, and he told his followers that he could transfer spiritual power to them and take away their sins and bad deeds. And sadly, this attack was not their first. Back about six six years prior, in October of 1989, there was a lawyer named Tatsumi Sakamoto who was threatening a lawsuit against them, and it, it had the potential to cause the group to go bankrupt. He was interviewed for a talk show on a Japanese TV station that same month, and for some reason, the network secretly showed the cult members, unbeknownst to Tatsumi, the lawyer, this interview. The next month, his wife and child went missing from their home, and there was speculation that it was this group, they couldn't prove it, and it was discovered after the subway attack that they had been murdered and dumped in separate locations by the group. They had a a whole list of individuals that they wanted to kill, and it must 
<laughs> must have been easy to make him mad and get on that list. There was even a cartoonist who would draw satire cartoons about them, and they didn't like that, so he was on this list. In the summer of 1993, they tried to cause an anthrax epidemic by spraying large amounts of it from the roof of a cooling tower in Tokyo, but it didn't work. And then in June of 1994, they used a converted refrigerator truck to release sarin near the homes of some judges who were overseeing a lawsuit about some real estate dispute which could possibly affect the cult. And so they just thought they would release sarin on them. And this attack killed eight people and injured 500. That's how crazy and potent this crap is. In December of 1994 and January of 1995, they attacked three people with VX, which is another nerve agent, but it's somehow more potent than sarin. A 28-year-old man who the leader of the cult suspected to be a spy was walking down the street when a member of the cult sprinkled the VX onto his neck. The guy chased them for about 100 yards before he collapsed, and he ended up in a deep coma, which he never came out of. In February of 1995, a 69-year-old man was receiving threatening calls, and they didn't say who they were, but he knew exactly who they were from. So he wrote a note that said, if I disappear, I was abducted by Aum Shinrikyo, and he, he did disappear. He was kidnapped by them from a street in Tokyo. They took him to a compound where they killed him, and then they destroyed his remains in a microwave-powered incinerator and threw the remnants into a lake. This old man was the brother of a member who had escaped the cult. That's how nasty this cult was, just so nasty and so destructive. And after the subway attack, the cult was caught, finally, and in 2018, the members were executed by hanging. In March of 1989, Mark Kilroy, who was your all-American type guy, headed to Mexico with three of his best friends for spring break. He was a pre-med student at the University of Texas, and he was looking forward to this trip. Mark parked his car in Brownsville, Texas, which is the town that borders Mexico, and the four friends crossed the International Bridge on foot into Matamoros. They were having a good time. They were checking out lots of dive bars with cheap drinks, but on their second night there, something went terribly wrong and changed everything. As the group of guys walked towards the border to Mark's car, Mark said that he had to use the bathroom. They were just 200 feet from the border, so his friends decided to just continue across. They figured, Mark's a big boy, he can catch up to, to us. So they get to the car, and they stood there waiting for him, but he wasn't coming. Remember, it's 1989, so they can't call him. After two hours, they finally headed back into Matamoros to look for him, but he, he, they couldn't find him anywhere. By the next day, they still hadn't heard from Mark, and they were really worried at this point what could have happened to him. So they went to report it, and the consul assured them that he probably just got drunk and wandered off, and he would turn up soon, but he just never did. So his family and friends passed out and pasted thousands of flyers with his face on it. Three weeks after Mark's disappearance, 
a few officers had set up some roadblocks while they were doing some work with American Drug Enforcement. And things were going normal until one car didn't stop. It just drove right through the roadblocks and a high-speed chase ensued. The officers were led to a ranch in following them. It was just south of Matamoros in a place called Santa Elena. And when the driver got out of the car, he was so surprised that he was being arrested. You'll know why I'm laughing in a second. Officers searched the property and they found hundreds of pounds of marijuana, which was a huge offense. And they noticed a small shed on the property. And there's this really, really terrible smell coming from it. So they go, they open it up, they look inside, and they see a couple things. Nothing illegal, They, but like an altar, a cauldron, some candles. But none of the officers, for whatever reason, searched any further, even though there's this smell. The men at the ranch were arrested for the, for the marijuana, including the elderly caretaker. That elderly caretaker would end up being a huge lead for them. When they got to the station, the caretaker saw this missing person flyer for Mark that his friends and family had distributed. And he said, hey, I I know that man. And police were like, go on. He told police that he had been bound in the back of a suburban three weeks earlier at the ranch, but he didn't know anything beyond that. So this obviously was a huge lead and police questioned the men who were brothers. They were the Hernandez brothers who lived at this ranch, and they all denied knowing anything except for one of them. And I don't know why he came clean, but he told the police everything. They had kidnapped him at the behest of El Padrino, the godfather, who had requested that they bring him a smart, handsome American who was studying to be a doctor. It's kind of weird and creepy that they knew he was pre-med, but El Padrino, he needed a, a human sacrifice. El Padrino was Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo, and he had a wild upbringing. He was raised in the Palo Mayombe tradition, which was related to Santeria, but it was way darker. His mom believed that her son was the chosen one. Don't we all? She believed that he was clairvoyant and performed rituals dedicating him to different spirits and gods. She would make him torture and kill animals and then praise him for it. She must have so many mom of the year awards at her house. When he was 21, his mom performed the final initiation on him, which would make him a priest, which meant he would hold the essence of the spirits and must sacrifice certain items to the Nyanga, which was the cult's cauldron, and this was so that he could receive blessings. And this is how he was raised, so I'm guessing this is all normal to him. He opened up a shop in Mexico City, where he performed all sorts of rituals for pay. Cleansing, healing, fortune-telling, that kind of stuff. And he met people of all all walks of life doing this, but the drug dealers are the ones who interested him the most because that's where the real money was. He convinced some of the kingpins at the tippy tippy top that he could cast spells to make them invisible to law enforcement and they paid him well for it. 
in reality, some police out there were corrupt and he was bribing them. He ended up at the ranch after the owner died and he stepped up boldly and convinced the brothers of the same thing. He could make them invisible to law enforcement and wait, that's not all. He could also make them bulletproof. He took over the ranch and all of its operations, becoming El Padrino, and these brothers completely believed in him and his cult. So when El Padrino asked for a handsome American man for a ritualistic sacrifice, they went and they got him one. No biggie. Police can't even see him. Piece of cake. They went out to the bars in town and they weeded through thousands of American tourists before settling on poor Mark. When Mark stopped to use the bathroom, they flashed fake badges at him, and they told him that he was under arrest for pub- for public drunkenness and threw him in the back of their suburban where he stayed for hours until El Padrino got there for the ritual. He was dragged into the shed where they used a machete to open up his skull, remove his brain to put into the nyanga, and he believed that this sacrifice would give him intelligence and wisdom. Okay, but no, though. Read some books instead. How about how about that? Let's do that instead, maybe. After the officers were filled in on everything, they took the brothers back to the ranch and they told them to take the them to the body. And one of the bro- the one brother who was telling them everything was like, "Which one?" And they were like, "Come on, man, we're not playing around and we're not in the mood. This is read the room and." Turns out he wasn't joking. There were several bodies buried on the ranch and they would go on to find out that there were at least 23 victims of Constanzo. Then there was his high high priestess and right-hand woman, Sarah Aldrete. She would lure victims and recruit new members to the cult. And it was crazy because she was so unassuming. She was an honor student majoring in physical education at a college in Texas. She was friendly. She was outgoing. She was really involved in extracurriculars. I don't know where she found the time, but she had been working with Constanzo for years. So police are on the hunt for this psycho man who was raised by a psycho mom. And after getting a suggestion that they burn the shed on the ranch where the Nyanga was, they were like, okay, let's, let's try that. So they did. They burned the shed. They were hoping that it would bring Constanzo out of hiding. And guess what? It worked. He was staying in a high-rise apartment with Sarah, his lover, and two of his other followers. And when he saw his precious Nyanga being burned on TV, he freaked out. And in this state of paranoia, he started to get rid of all of his money He was throwing cash and coins out onto the street. He was burning it. And police were already at the apartment complex responding to another call. So they just happened to see all this going down and it caught their attention. So they went to see what's up and realized this was the guy. The shootout ensued. One officer was wounded, but Constanza was dead. When they went up, he had multiple gunshot wounds. 14 of the cult members were charged with crimes from drug running, to murder, to obstruction of justice, and the Hernandez brothers and Sarah Aldrete were each given prison sentences of over 60 years. And that's the end of part one 
I'm excited and scared for part two. If you'd like to reach me, you can do so on my Instagram at Reagan Tells Stories. And I will see you next week. Have a great week. Take care. I love you. Bye.